When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With Quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit audi.ca to learn more. This past June, Canada formally, some would say finally, requested that a World Trade Organization dispute panel look into China's decision from about two years ago to ban canola seed imports from two major Canadian producers. It's a new phase to a long simmering dispute, and it shows how Canada's trade with China is increasingly contentious at a time when our geopolitical tensions are also increasing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Sharon Zengyang's son, trade policy economist for the Canada West Foundation and a distinguished fellow for the Asia Pacific Foundation. Sun believes that with China's economic clout growing, Canada can't disengage or run away from China even if it wanted to. Instead, she said that our agricultural sector, things like canola, could provide a bridge to China. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Sharon Zhangyang Sun, thanks so much for coming on Down to Business today. Thanks so much for having me. So Canada-China relations are probably not the best right now, as a lot of people know. And in a recent report that you co-authored, you noted that China has food security problems and Canada has excess food. This could provide a way to, I think, re-engage with China. Can you explain a little what you meant? Sure. Um, So the key point of the report is just addressing how to manage the reality uh, with China. So, you know, increasingly Canada and China's trade has been tangled with geopolitics and political issues. And so while addressing the political issues are important, especially when it comes to the hostages, it definitely needs to be addressed. The point of this report is for us to kind of provide another perspective in terms of that we also need to think about managing the trade reality um, because China is our second largest trading partner and our two-way trade with China has been growing at a rate of 12% over the last two decades. And 37% of Canada's export last year to China was on agriculture. And so the point of this report is really just to address how to manage this reality. Yeah. Do you know how it compares to the U.S.? It's a distant second, but it's still a big part of our trade, I guess. So U.S. is definitely still Canada's largest trading partner. And as of last year, U.S.'s two-way trade accounts for about 60.9% of Canada's total trade with the world. And China accounts for 9.5%. And so, you know, U.S., comparatively speaking, is still extremely large compared to China. And that's not surprising, right? Because U.S. is the largest economy in the world still, and it is also closest to us in terms of distance. 
But what's important to note here is the speed of China's growth in the world. You know, China will become the largest economy in the world. Some say as early as uh, 2028, and some even say possibly earlier because of COVID-19 and China's speed of recovery. And so that's what we mean by we need to manage this reality, because even if we want to disengage or run away from China, we will still run into China. Right. A lot of people may not even remember, but back in 2019, China applied tariffs to canola from Canada, which at the time was largely interpreted as kind of arbitrary. As a country, Canada finally filed a complaint about this with the World Trade Organization in June. And I'm wondering why it may have taken so long and what you expect could happen next. Right. So in terms of the canola dispute, just to give a little background, it's it's not a new issue. It was voiced by the Chinese administration first in 2009 in terms of the dockage issue of Canadian canola seed export to China. So the dockage, it's basically the percentage of canola content that has blackleg, which is a disease that affects canola crops, weed, as well as other content aside from canola seeds. And so the conventional dockage percentage thus far has been 2% in terms of Canadian canola seed export to China, right? And so since 2009, the Chinese government has voiced concerns about this. And then also again in 2016, except in 2016, China and Canada was able to sign an MOU to kind of ensure Canadian canola exporters continue access to China, uh, the Chinese market, while working together to resolve these issues through scientific research cooperation and so on. Now, the 2016 MOU ensured market access until 2020. And as we saw in 2019, China started the suspension of two of Canada's largest canola seed export companies, right? And so this is a a very long process, as you've indicated. And until both sides agree on what is the dockage, as well as other kind of strands and trade issues with, uh, with canola, you know, this will continue to be an issue. Do you know what they're using the canola seed that they're getting from us for? So Canada exports a lot of canola seed to China, and most of this canola seed is then crushed in China to convert to canola oil, for example. What's interesting is, obviously, because of the 2019 issue, we saw a drastic decline from 2018 to 2019 of about 71% in terms of canola seed export. And in 2019, we see that you know, Canada really tried to diversify the market to increase canola seed export to other countries such as Pakistan, UAE, Australia, and so on. But what we see is, you know, despite this diversification, we are still about $540 million short in 2019. And um, most of these export diversification that I mentioned to, you know, UAE, Australia, all of these exports are then redirected to China. Oh, interesting. And so this is the reason why, obviously, direct market access to China is much more beneficial than all of this indirect access. And that's one of the reasons why I was saying that even if we want to run away from China, we'll still be running into China because China is the largest consumer 
for canola, for example. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and so the report not only talks about canola, but we talk about agriculture in general in terms of, you know, using agriculture as one of the the common interests for both Canada and China because food security is so important, so, so important for China. And we particularly see renewed emphasis on this in China's recent five-year plan. So it's their newest development plan for the next five to 10 years that was published this year. And this is one of the reasons why uh, we've identified agriculture as one of the key common interests where China and Canada aligned. Right. Not to dwell too much on canola. I mean, it's it's important and it accounts for, I think, about one quarter of all of Canada's crop revenue, which makes it the biggest single crop in the country. But at the same time, it's only $11.9 billion in exports. And I say only because that doesn't seem like much to a $1.9 trillion economy. What are the consequences if this doesn't get resolved for Canada? Well, even as we speak, Canada is responding quickly um, in terms of not just when, when, so when we talk about diversification, um, most people think about new markets. Right, sell canola to UAE, to Pakistan, or or somewhere else. But we also need to think about product diversification. So when it comes to market diversification, obviously we can't run away from China because China is the largest consumer in the world. But we can also think about product diversification, and we've already seen. Um, so in our latest China brief, um, if you want to take a look, uh, we talked about. The, you know, the new focus on biofuel mandate in, in Canada and using canola to, to produce biofuel, right? And you're looking at potential use of equivalent to what we export to China in terms of canola seed. So, so we keep emphasizing not just new market, but also new product diversification, just like plant protein. Uh, in terms of creating new products and looking at new markets as a way to continue to facilitate our economy and facilitate one of our most important crops in Canada. Well, let me pivot for a minute. So much of the sort of poor relations between Canada and China right now, I think you could probably say is tied to the relation between the U.S. and China, because this all sort of seemed to come to a head when we detained Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou, at the request of the United States. I'm wondering if you see this whole situation improving now that there's a different president in the United States. That's a really good question. And it's also the billion dollar question that everyone wants to know. We can see some, you know, based on the new administration, we do see that it is still very much America first focused. During the Trump administration, China and U.S. signed a phase one deal, and that really covered not just two-year commitments on agriculture, but also structural processes in place. For example, um, China has X number of days to approve a new strand or new trait or new product that U.S. wants to apply to to export to China and so on. So all of these structural processes that are in place under the agreement is something that Canada does not have with China. And so I raise this because the Americans are our allies when our interests converge, but our interests don't always align, especially on the economic and trade interests. 
And in fact, in terms of agriculture, we compete with the Americans. So it's natural that when it comes to China, there are some tensions. There are areas that we will work together and there are areas that we compete. And this is nothing new. In 1950s, we've seen this with Diefenbaker, where U.S. embargoed China during China's greatest famine. And when that happened, Canada said no, and Canada sold grain to China. And this was the height of the Cold War. And we were able to cooperate with U.S. during the Cold War, as we know. And so this is not something new. We will always have areas that we compete with the U.S. on the trade and economic front. And we will always be allies where our interests converge. Broader issue that you hear come up when you talk about Canada-China relations is that there's one camp who feel like, oh, it's a great business opportunity. The economy is growing so fast. And there's another camp that says, well, they don't really play by any rules. If you look at the imprisonment of the two Michaels, or when I mean, if you look at this way the government operates, even within its own country, the what's happening to ethnic minorities and Uyghurs, their surveillance, can you sort of come to the right decision about whether we should engage with China to sort of grow our trade relationship, whether we need to be careful about powering a country that seems comfortable operating on a unilateral basis? That's a really difficult question, but I think when it comes to China, China in the sense of for Canada to engage a country, when Canada engage a country on trade, whether it's India or China or anywhere else, there will always be a myriad of issues that is not just relating to trade, right? There are political, geopolitical, and and so on and other issues. But it doesn't mean that Canada will stop trading with that nation. And we haven't seen that, right? And in addition, when it comes to multilateral rules, China has followed WTO rules so far. We don't hear about what works in the WTO normally, right? We mostly hear about what doesn't work. And if we look at WTO historical records, China has complied with many of the disputes brought up against it and not comply, but also resolve with the counterparty or counter country under the WTO and actually more than the U.S. And so the question you've proposed is quite difficult, but I think it doesn't mean that Canada needs to stop engaging China. And in fact, it actually emphasizes that Canada needs to engage China at all levels. At the WTO level, it definitely will take time, but we've seen that it's worked in the past and Canada needs to continue to reinforce and fortify WTO, which is what you know it's taken steps to do, as well as engaging at the regional level and bilateral level. So especially in the region, in terms of accessing the ever-growing opportunities in the Indo-Pacific region, but also being involved in order to, you know, continue to engage with China. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about as you're saying this is throughout the past 15 months or so during the pandemic, there have been more reports of anti-Asian prejudice. And there have been a number of polls that have talked about many Canadians feel China is operating unfairly. Do you think that this country will have the political will to look at this policy kind of soberly and objectively? Well, I think Canada has to look at it more objectively and rationally. Of course, it's easy to to be affected by emotions. But when we look at Japan and U.S., when Japan 
grew so significantly and took up X percentage of U.S. economy, U.S. reacted in a similar way in terms of the anti-sentiments uh, towards Japanese or just, just like towards Chinese people now. So we've definitely gone past that. And so what you've indicated actually emphasizes more than ever that Canada needs to manage and deal with this reality. Yeah. If, if trade doesn't improve with China, do you think there are other opportunities for Canada to fill in some of these missed opportunities with some of the other growing economies in the region, in Japan and Korea, for instance? Well, Canada is not going to stop trading with China. Just looking at last year's numbers, yes, in terms of 2018-2019, there was a decline in overall Canadian exports to China, 16% decline, mainly because of the agricultural decline in canola seed, canola oil, soybeans. So that was about a 38% decline. So in 2018-2019, we did see a decline. But in 2019-2020, so last year, we saw both recovery and growth in the agriculture sector. We saw recovery for both canola and soy, although it's still not up to the 2018 high. Canola export to, to China was like maxed in 2018. So it didn't hit that 2.8 billion high, but it did recover to 1.4 billion last year. And in addition, we saw growth in many areas such as wheat, barley, peas. Last year is Canada's all-time high export to China. Um, so we've seen actually growth in Canadian exports to China last year. And so, again, uh, we will not be able to fully displace China. We will always be trading with China. That being said, we need to obviously not put all our eggs in one basket. And so that's why I emphasize new product, new market. We also need to uh, focus on the product diversification whether that's biofuel, you know, plant protein, as well as the new initiatives that Canada is putting forward, whether that's carbon capture, as well as increasing the efficiency in some of the existing large industries, whether it's oil and gas and so on. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and just want to thank you for taking the time to break down some of these really complex issues. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Sharon Zhengyang Sun, trade policy economist for the Canada West Foundation and a distinguished fellow for the Asia Pacific Foundation. As always, this episode was produced through the tireless work of several others, including Bryce Hall on music and production, Yadula Hussein editing, and Victoria Wells with web support. Thanks for listening, and thanks you for all your support of Down to Business by sharing episodes and rating us on podcast apps. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week, but until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters from FP, including energy, finance, the future of work, investing, and the economy.